The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years, and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great-tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Jeff Chilton is a mushroom pioneer with over 40 years experience in studying mushrooms across the world, both for their medicinal value and everything else. (laughs) To find out more about Jeff Chilton, please visit his website at namex.com. That is N-A-M-M-E-X dot com. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, brother? Good, Pete. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really quite excited to be here. Me too, because we're going to talk about one of my favorite ingredients in the world, and that is mushrooms. <laughs> and, and I just want to start off by saying that as a child, if there was a boogeyman or something scary, it was a mushroom to me. That was my biggest fear as a kid is if my mum would cook mushrooms and try to put them on my plate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you know what? That's so interesting because I don't think I've ever heard a young person say anything except, ah, mushrooms, I ate them. They're so slimy. (laughs) And now they're one of our favorite ingredients. Mine anyway, my wife's, we, we cook with them quite a lot. And it's funny how we go through these stages in our life where we like something, we don't like something, we like something or vice versa, and we grow our palates and our understanding. And and sometimes it's it's even about facing our fears. (laughs) So let's get started with you. And uh, how did you get involved in mushrooms? Well, for one, I live in an area that is one of the best wild mushrooming locations in the world. That's Pacific Northwest, Washington State, and, and now I'm in uh, British Columbia. So we have that perfect climate during the fall where the temperatures are just right. We get lots of water. It's a real rainy uh, maritime type of temperate climate. So I had mushrooms all around me when I was growing up and was able to go out mushroom hunting uh, early on. And Pete, that's kind of like a treasure hunt. 
you get to go out and you walk through the woods and it's just a beautiful environment. And if you find a mushroom, you're just like, oh my God, look at that. That's just fantastic. So that was really kind of the start for me. And then when I went to university in the late 60s, I uh, studied anthropology, but I decided to study some mycology too. And I put the two together and kind of created my own study, which was ethnomycology, which was the use of mushrooms worldwide for food, for medicine, and also for shamanic purposes. So I don't know what it was. It just kind of clicked with me uh, early on. I love it. And we're going to delve into each one of those topics right now <laughs> over the course of this <laughs> podcast, food, medicine, and also shamanic practices. These are three uh, very dear to me concepts of life. And let's start with food because I think people might be quite amazed with how many different types of mushrooms there are out there that are edible for us as human beings. Dozens and dozens and dozens of species of mushrooms that we eat. There's probably about 12 to 15 species that are cultivated and we find in our markets, especially in Asia, not necessarily in the West so much, but it's getting better. We probably have at least six or seven species now in, in North America. One of the things to remember about mushrooms is that every species has a little different nutritional profile. For example, a shiitake mushroom will be approximately 20% protein, 65% carbs, 7% fat, and agaricus, which is the button mushroom, will be 35% protein and 45% carbohydrate. So each mushroom has a different profile, but in general, the mushroom is going to give you not only a good high quality protein, but carbohydrates that are not the starches that we're so used to getting as carbohydrates. Mushrooms do not produce starch. Interestingly enough, mushrooms produce glycogen just like we do as our storage carbohydrates. So they kind of share that trait, but their carbohydrates are built upon what are called beta-glucans. And that's what's really cool about mushrooms is because the beta-glucan makes up 50% of the cell wall of the mushroom. And that's also what is the medicinal compound in mushrooms. So not only are we getting these other benefits, but we're getting the medicinal benefits from a mushroom when we eat them. So we don't even have to necessarily supplement. We're going to get those as we eat the mushroom as well. So they've got a great profile in terms of food, high in vitamins, B vitamins, B1, B2, B3, which is thiamine, riboflavin, and niacin. So we can get with 100 grams of, say, agaricus mushrooms, we'll be getting 25% of our RDAs for the riboflavin and niacin, also high in phosphorus and potassium. The other thing about mushrooms to know is that mushrooms are very high in fiber. So a lot of the nutrients don't really get utilized until they go down and feed the microbiome. So they're actually a prebiotic. So High in fiber, the carbohydrates are slow-acting carbohydrates, so they're not going to be raising blood sugar or anything like that. Just an overall good food. In fact, I consider mushrooms sort of to be the, the missing food link. Hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Sarah Ferguson. She's called the Paleo Mom, but she's actually put mushrooms now into her food pyramid. Yeah, it's uh, Sarah Ballantyne, actually, is the Paleo Mom. 
Valentine, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sarah was actually my first guest on this podcast, actually, two years ago. Uh, uh, she's really great. And, and so it was really fun when she put mushrooms into the food pyramid because I, th- I think they've been the missing dietary link. And what's so interesting is that we're getting more and more studies out there that show that populations that eat a lot of mushrooms live longer than populations that don't. Interesting. I find it fascinating. I mean, I'm not sure whether you know it, but I've been monitored uh, the paleo chef myself because the, yeah. the diet that I promote over the last nearly decade now. And mushrooms have been one of these wonderful ingredients. It's like, is it a vegetable? No. So when we're talking about, you know, I always say a really simple diet, it's well-sourced meat or seafood and some sort of vegetable. And I love the idea of actually putting that into the food pyramid and actually add mushrooms. Yeah. And I, I want to talk to you about sustainability because there's certain foods around the world that require very little input if any, what comes to mind for me is oysters, for instance, mussels, these wonderful shellfish that basically just siphon the or utilize the nutrients in the ocean for them to grow. A seaweed would be another one. Mm-hmm. And we have this mm-hmm. these amazing biological environmental systems that we could tap into for long-term sustainable health for not only ourselves, but also for the planet. And one of the big things that we promote here is regenerative agriculture, pasture-raised cattle in the way that someone like Joel Salatin promotes from Polyface Farms that shows that we can actually build topsoil and sequester carbon. Now, I've never had anybody on the podcast before talking about the sustainability, what surrounds mushrooms, but I'm thinking it's probably very good for the planet and probably very low input. You know, the amazing thing about fungi and mushrooms is they are decomposers. And so what they're doing for us on the planet is they're actually repurposing all of that organic matter that every year, whether it be wood, like branches, whether it be leaves, whether it be plant matter, annual plant matter where the plant grows, it dies, all of that organic matter, Pete, is repurposed by fungi. So what's really interesting is that we have all of these agricultural waste materials that we're producing. Every country produces them because they're producing some type of of agricultural product. So mushrooms have always been grown on agricultural waste materials. As an example, the button mushroom that we see in the supermarkets, it is primarily grown on straw. All that wheat that is being grown out there, all those types of grains, that straw that's left over from that is actually the base material for a mushroom compost that the agaricus mushroom grows on. Most of the mushrooms that we grow for our medicinal mushrooms, and this is kind of an interesting fact, is that most medicinal mushrooms are wood decomposers. And to me, I find that really fascinating because I'm like, okay, there's something in wood that these particular mushroom species like and can repurpose into medicinal compounds. And that's what they're doing. So most of the mushrooms that we grow are grown on sawdust and sawdust that is supplemented with a nutrient and normally that nutrient interestingly enough and and we grow all our mushrooms in china is rice bran so we've got a couple of 
byproducts here of other industries that, okay, what are we going to do with these? What are we going to do with this sawdust? I mean, you could probably just put it back in the fields, but it, you'd really rather have it broken down. So what's happening is you're taking those raw materials that are essentially a waste product, so to speak, and then you're growing the mushroom. And when you're getting mushrooms off that sawdust log, let's say, because we make it into a kind of a synthetic log, mycelium, which is the root structure of this mushroom, it is breaking down that sawdust so that by the time you've harvested your mushrooms, now you actually have a product that is utilized as a soil adjuvant. So that sawdust log when it's finished, just like the mushroom compost that the agaricus button mushroom grows on, they're both sent off for agricultural purposes uh, to basically put into your soils. And now they have been broken down into something that the soils can utilize much more readily. Mm, I love it. Let's talk about where do mushrooms grow? Like what parts of the world do they grow in and what parts of the world haven't they been able to grow in? In terms of cultivated mushrooms, I mean, mushrooms in general, they're, they're everywhere. There's nowhere that they're not really, uh, unless you get to the really frozen areas, but there will still be fungi there, uh, other types of these organisms, uh, not mushrooms per se, but in terms of growing mushrooms, I mean, mushroom growing is a worldwide uh, endeavor. You, you've got lots of mushrooms being grown in Australia, for example. And, and you know, it's interesting because in Australia, just as an example, the agaricus mushrooms that uh, would be growing in Australia are going to be grown indoors in very large warehouses. These warehouses will be climate controlled, so they'll have uh, very sophisticated mechanical systems that are providing heating, cooling, humidification, fresh air. They're giving those mushrooms what you could consider to be the most perfect environmental conditions that they could ever want to grow because they're trying to maximize the yield of those mushrooms. Now, when you get into places like China, which is what I really love, and that is rather than all of these mechanical inputs, which, which we in the West love because we love machines that can do all of these different different tasks for us. And so we're very machine oriented. We put in a lot of capital into, let's just say the, what we call the growing room or the growing house and, and all of these mechanical systems. In China, they're growing the majority of their mushrooms in greenhouses covered with shade cloth. And the other cool thing about it is that they are staging them depending on the temperature. So what's happening is, for example, reishi mushroom, they will start it actually growing in the uh, late spring. It will grow all during the summer, and then they will harvest it in September. It loves warm temperatures. So in a, in a reishi mushroom a greenhouse, I'll go in there and the temperature is going to be 28 30 degrees, it's just like, oh my God, it's humid, it's hot. And again, these are greenhouses, uh, uh, shaded, but open so that there's fresh air coming into these. Now, once that season is over, you've got shiitake mushrooms, maitake mushrooms, lion's mane mushrooms. They are now just being engaged or started right around, let's just say, October. 
So they're just starting to develop in October because the temperature now in these areas has lowered and now the temperature is just perfect for them to grow. So they're growing and being harvested actually in November. And a few other mushrooms are, are going to be harvested in late November, early December when temperatures are even cooler. So the majority of the mushrooms that are being grown Rather than being inside of a large warehouse type space where they're getting all of these uh, different environmental parameters controlled perfectly, no, over there it is like according to the season. So they'll be getting that one crop, they'll harvest it off, and then they'll be waiting till the next year. So it's a real natural way to actually produce a food crop. Yeah, I'm loving that, Avita. I've just spent a year traveling the world and seeing different ways that cannabis is grown. And the one thing that kept coming back to me was a little bit like what we talked about before, regenerative farming. And the purists out there love their cannabis to be grown in the soil, outside, under the sun. They're listening to the two versions so far that you've spoken about of how to grow mushrooms, you have the indoor variety, which is done at the warehouses and I've visited those establishments before or factories where they actually grow the butter mushrooms, as you say, indoors. Yep. About 20 years ago was my first adventure into uh, working out where our food comes from. And I was like, oh, this is very strange, growing mushrooms indoors <laughs> in a factory. And the more that... I'm going along this journey and listening to what you're talking about there. I quite like the idea of the greenhouse more so than the factory-based or warehouse-based production method for mushrooms. Now, my question to you is, what's the best mushroom for you? The ones that are grown out in the open or under shade cloth? Because from my understanding, mushrooms like to be in a dark place. Is that correct? Well, Depends. <laughs> that's really interesting because you probably heard the joke, I feel like a mushroom because I'm uh, kept in the dark and being fed uh -huh. bullshit. You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, the interesting part of that is, is that kind of reflects upon the button mushroom because the button mushroom actually does not need light. And then they say, okay, bullshit, but actually it's a, it's a straw-based <laughs> compost it grows on. But the button mushroom does not need light to grow. But most mushrooms, in fact, the majority need light to grow. So when, you, when you're actually growing them in these outdoor environments, you're getting natural light if you were growing them. And a lot of people will grow these other mushrooms like shiitake or maitake indoors as well. You would have to give them some kind of artificial light inside because they need that to mature properly. A mushroom that does not get enough light, what happens is it ends up growing a very, very long stem with a very, very small cap. And sometimes you'll actually come across one of these mushrooms in the wild where it has started to grow in kind of a darker spot uh, behind a rock or under something. And the stem will start snaking out searching for the light. Hmm. And it's so interesting when you find it. it's also the light also is something that will give the mushroom its natural pigmentation. So without light, most mushrooms will not 
take on the color that they would have naturally. So actually, agaricus button mushroom is kind of a very unique mushroom in that sense, in, in that it does not need light to mature properly. So growing it indoors is an easy way to do it. And actually, where they started with that mushroom uh, was in the 1700s in France. And what they did is they grew them in all of the limestone caves because they're mining a lot of limestone there all around Paris. And so they've got these underground limestone uh, quarries. And so they started growing the mushrooms down there. And the reason they did that was because the temperature in these underground tunnels and caves was just the perfect temperature for growing the mushroom, which was approximately 15 degrees Celsius. So you sort of had this perfect match of growing this mushroom at that perfect temperature with these underground caves in France. And they actually ended up calling this mushroom the Champignon de Paris, the mushroom of Paris. <laughs> I've been foraging for wild mushrooms over the years as being a chef as well. And when it's autumn over here, your fall, I guess you would say, going out into the forest to harvest what we would call over here pine mushrooms or slippery jacks is, hmm, how do I say this? They're pretty fucking tasty, I tell you. <laughs> you can compare a buttered mushroom to a pine mushroom, for instance, or a slippery jack, or a chanterelle from France, or a morel. You know, there's just no comparison. I know I do love buttered mushrooms, but there's something so romantic and so delicious about these wild forage mushrooms that grow out in these forests. And they do get the sunlight, no doubt. And it's this, it's nearly like this really sort of trippy environment when you walk into a forest like that to forage for mushrooms. It's like time stands still. Oh, man. Absolutely. God, you, you, you've really nailed it. We live in British Columbia. We have a forest up above where our, our offices are located. And it's a beautiful second growth a conifer forest with some patches of virgin growth up there. And walking through that forest is literally like going back in time. There's a silence about it. There is a majesty about it. There are creeks coming down off the mountainside where this forest is. And in that forest, you, you've got to come over sometime and, and, and go, go mushroom hunting with us because we have, we have chanterelles like you can't imagine. And that same forest also produces a lot of pine mushrooms as well. It's just a magical place. And, and that's one of the things about being out on a mushroom hunt it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like, you know, I love to go fishing. I'm in Patagonia now and I trout fish every day down here. I may or may not catch a fish, just like I may or may not find a mushroom that particular day. But just being in that environment, the air, the space, the ambience, there is something so deeply primal about that. For me, it's, it's just like uh, being 
you know, some people might go to church, I'll go into the forest. <laughs> so you've studied anthropology and I want to delve into the history of mushrooms and the human, our relationship with mushrooms over the millennia. And what's the earliest known historical record of us interacting with the mushrooms? Well, you know, I guess there's a couple of different aspects to that, one of which is medicinally, the Greeks talk about mushrooms back in, let's say, somewhere around CE 100 or somewhere around there. So the Greeks were into mushrooms as medicine. I, I would say mushrooms have got to be one of the original primal foods because before people are even growing, you know, vegetables. And again, mushrooms, not a vegetable. It's a fungus. But there you have it. You've got this wonderful meaty organism there that pops up every year at a certain time. So food wise, uh, I just think mushrooms are something we've probably eaten for tens of thousands of years as humans. And record wise, we also have now more and more information coming out about the use of mushrooms in shamanic purposes. And part of the shamanic thing is also has to do with healing because one of the interesting things that was discovered was back in the 50s, they discovered that there was still a group of indigenous people in the mountains, deep in the mountains of Mexico, that were still using mushrooms in their, in their healing. They had curanderas and curanderos that would actually consume the mushrooms with their patient and also have the patient eat the mushrooms as well. And then they would essentially figure out what was going on with this particular person. So I traveled to Mexico to go back into the mountains to find some of these people and learn more about it. And that was in the early 70s. I mean, I just wanted to go as deep as I could and, and get to where I could understand more about how actually they use these. And when that was discovered, it was a game changer in terms of our understanding of these particular substances. I mean, you know, the 60s was Albert Hoffman with the LSD in the 60s. You had Timothy Leary come along and he first went down to Mexico and ate mushrooms before he came back and was introduced to LSD. So you had all of these different consciousness expanding plants that burst upon the scene and we're trying to figure out exactly how to use them in our own lives. Looking at these other cultures, that was a big part of it. And for me, in my studies in anthropology, looking at how other cultures use these things was something like, do we have a roadmap, uh, rituals? Do we have some manner of utilizing these that would tell us how to do it instead of just going straight into it and experimenting, which was a lot of times what was going on. And as you look back into prehistory, what you'd find is there was a lot of mushroom images in stonework in a lot of ancient cities. You had mushroom images that were being found in North Africa that had humanoid images with mushroom heads on them. And at the same time, we had major books that were written, one by Gordon Lawson, who was a New York banker. He was the one that discovered, so to speak, mushroom use still taking place in 
the mountains of Mexico. He actually writes an article about that in a magazine. Think about this for a second, people, because this is what's really amazing. Here it is, 1957, and there's a mainstream magazine in the United States, the Life magazine. It's a big, large size magazine that's kind of just a lifestyle magazine. And in this magazine, they actually print about a 10-page with pictures and the watercolors of mushrooms article about his journey to Mexico. And on the cover of this magazine, it says, Adventures, Mushrooms That create visions discovered in Mexico. Hmm. And think about that for a second. I mean, can you imagine something like that today? <laughs> where some, where there's like, this is like some sort of really, this is, wow, this is really interesting. Mushrooms that cause visions discovered somewhere. It would be like, no, not possibly. But in the 50s, it was an age of not only innocence, but it was an age to me where people were still studying history and the classics and looking back and trying to figure out what was going on 2,000, 3,000 years ago. We also have stoneworks of uh, Greek gods and goddesses holding mushrooms. And in the rites of Eleusis in Greece, that was one of the mysteries that scholars were trying to figure out. What was it that they were drinking there that created the visions and gave this spot in Greece, such a reverence. And, you know, it was a very special place. So here we have this New York banker coming out with this article in 57, which not very many people paid attention to. Hmm. And then in 1968, he writes a book called Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality, in which he says that Soma, and again, this gets back to classical scholars who are going like, what was this Soma, which they write about in the Hindu books like our Bible? They're writing about this substance called Soma, which takes you to a place of the gods, so to speak, takes you on this vision, takes you into a place that is so different. And people were trying for about hundreds of years to figure out what was this. He publishes a book saying, hey, it was actually a mushroom. You know, back in the early 1900s and up until about the 1960s, this was all the realm of classical scholars trying to figure this out. And it was a discipline and, and an academic endeavor that nobody was looking at that like, what the hell are you interested in that for? But here it is. It comes out and somebody has discovered what this was. It turns out it's a mushroom. And then at the same time, you have another scholar who has been put on the team to investigate the Dead Sea Scrolls, which they discovered in the 50s. They bring together a team of linguists to look at those, piece them together, try and figure out what they have to say. And he comes out and writes a book in the same year, 1968, and says, well, it looks like we have this same mushroom as the basis for Christianity. You know, because most of these religions end up early on starting with somebody having a vision or people in general having visions and having these experiences of another world. In a sense, what they're seeing is they're just seeing uh, basically a deeper dimension or a deeper part of our humanness, but it's a very special, very powerful, very meaningful experience. And religions jump up and are created as a result of that. And it turns out that mushrooms are involved. <laughs> so, 
So can you imagine telling somebody like that, oh, by the way, your religion started with a mushroom? <laughs> There's two common threads that I've been hearing over the years about religion, and it's a worshipping of sun seems to be a, a common denominator across most of the religions. And number two, psychedelic experiences based off generally mushrooms, psilocybin, to produce these visions for these people to have these experiences of divine connection, you know, expanding of heart, expanding of love, knowing that we're all connected and we're all one and no judgment and that whole thing. And that seems to be the basis of most religions as well. So I find it really fascinating. I'm not going to go on the record to say that that is exactly what it is, but it keeps popping up. It keeps <laughs> popping up. It keeps popping up. And I've read some of these books that you talk about and, and I find it fascinating. And I have a very open mind and I have had many psychedelic experiences through my life and it makes a lot of sense to me. I see how there can be some parallels to that and why that is. And you know, the thing about it is, is when you're in that state, it's a state of ecstasy. And this is something that certainly the Greeks talked about. And it's an ecstatic state where every single cell in your organism is in this ecstatic state and you are melting and you at that point do become one with everything out there with this energy that's in the universe and that is a revelation that when you have it it can change you in a very very positive way and the way i look at it too is that could in fact be the most powerful healing experience as well because putting somebody's body into an ecstatic state, an organism into this ecstatic state, I mean, that has to have very, very profound effect upon us as a human, where if we are sick in any way, to me, that experience probably would be the best thing that could happen to us. And if we did that in a regular way, who knows, we might end up living longer. And you know, what's interesting is this when the New York banker Gordon Lawson went to Mexico and found this group of people that were using these mushrooms, there was one woman in particular that he hooked up with. Her name was Maria Sabina. She was a, a native curandera. She was taking mushrooms regularly, especially in season. And she was a very well-known healer in that area. Now she's actually considered a saint in Mexico. But she lived to be 91 years old hmm. and she probably has taken these particular mushrooms more times than anybody in the world, literally, because she was engaged in that as a local healer for most of her life. And it's really fascinating to think about that. And, and, and people know that now. They know that there's no physiological, let's say, downside to taking psilocybe mushrooms or a lot of these other plant medicines. She's kind of a poster woman for that whole fact that these physiologically are not doing you any harm. Now, mentally, some people should not be taking them. That, that's certainly one of the other things. But otherwise, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I consider it to be just a, a very deep and profound healing experience. Mm. When I think about fungi or mushrooms, the thing that I find quite fascinating and nearly like a joke is that 
there's ones out there that can give you this divine experience. There's other species out there that can kill you if you eat them. <laughs> and then, and then, there's these, then there's different ones that can sustain us nutritionally and also be used for medicine and for healing. So sum that up for me that these things can kill you, but also bring you to God or experience yourself as God <laughs> and, and also be used as a way to get through a famine, for instance, if you found them. It just is, is part of how so very interesting this planet is, this organism that we are a part of. I, I look at it sometimes and I say, there is absolutely nothing that any science fiction writer could dream of <laughs> that would be more far out than what we've got right now on this planet. Because when you look at some of the animals or plants, the different, uh, you know, it's like you look at insects or you look at reptiles. There are so many strange, weird, but amazingly uh, beautiful creatures out there. And it's the same with plants and, and even uh, mushrooms. I mean, it is just a, an amazing world that we live in. I'm an eternal optimist and I think that everything that we have in our environment on this planet is here for a reason and that, you know, there seems to be a lot of alarm out there about the climate and I don't want to get into that here. But we're talking about the environment, we're talking about the climate, we're talking about sustainability, we're talking about have we got enough food to feed the planet, are we overpopulating? And one of the things that I can't help but shake is this unnerving faith in humanity and faith in the planet that we have everything that we ever would need to fix all of our problems because we created all of our problems. And one of the things I heard last year, which was um, something that came through through the channels, was someone had developed a way of using mushrooms to break down plastic to decompose what was considered something that you could not break down. Is there any truth to that? And do you have the same optimism for this planet? I guess what I would say, first of all, you know, you have to look at the kingdom of fungi. There are fungi that are called imperfect fungi. Others called perfect fungi. Perfect fungi are, are where the mushrooms reside. Mm -hmm. Imperfect fungi are strictly mycelium-based life forms. They do not produce a perfect stage, which is what we would call a mushroom. And in that imperfect grouping of fungi, there are thousands, millions of different species that can do all sorts of amazing things. And I think a lot of people talk about that and the fact that they can break down because the way they work is they, for example, with mushrooms, they don't have seeds. You know, you, you can't plant a mushroom with a, a seed. They have spores. The spores, when they germinate, they will germinate into a very fine filament. And when multiple filaments grow together, into a network that's called mycelium. And that mycelium is what we normally never see because it's either in the ground or in a piece of wood. If you, if you harvest a mushroom and you look down into the ground where you've pulled it out, you will probably see the mycelium there. It's a, normally a white-looking network of root-like filaments. And so then there's the mycelial stage and then the mushroom part of it, that's the the perfect stage, and then the mushroom 
will in fact mature, it will drop spores, that will complete the life cycle for that mushroom organism. On the imperfect side, it's just out there and it is doing all the same things that the mycelium does for the mushroom, except it doesn't produce any sort of mushroom. And so there are definitely fungal organisms that they're discovering that can break down all sorts of different organic matter because what they're doing is they have different enzyme systems and there's so many of these different species of these fungi and the different enzymes that they are utilizing because that's how they feed. After that spore germinates and that tube starts to grow, then it will secrete enzymes into its environment. The enzymes will break down the material, the, the organic material around it, and then into units that this fungal bread can utilize. It will be pulled back into it, and it will keep growing, and it just moves out into the environment with its enzymatic system. And as long as it can find nutrients or, or organic matter, to break down that it has the enzymes to do that, it will continue to grow. So absolutely, there's definitely those out there and we can find them. I do, however, differ a little bit with you on that because I don't look for the why of anything. Why does something do this or why does something do that? Or what's the reason for this? Or do we have a purpose or anything like that? I, I don't look for any of that because I think that is, that's a very human trait. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just see us as uh, we are part of this organism. Whether or not we end up consuming our way out of this world, which is quite possible, because I, I don't think we necessarily, you know, it's just like the whole concepts of good and bad or anything like that. You know, I just kind of like, okay, the way things work, if you, if you want to get rid of those human constructs, it's just like things happen. And, and uh, in the sense of, of the way everything has developed, well, I kind of think of it as this whole process of natural selection. Whatever works is what plants or animals or fungi will adapt to it's it's almost like water if, if you you're looking at water and you just watch how water works i mean it just moves and if there's an obstruction it just moves around it and you know that's just the way i, I look at most plants animals and all of us is we're just kind of moving through this organism doing our best to adapt so everybody's adapting to their circumstances, but I'm doing my best not to put any kind of reasons to it or ask why things are happening. For me, there is just such beauty. And, you know, one of the things about, about being in Patagonia here too, Pete, is it's summertime and I'm out in the environment. I'm not much in urban centers and in small towns. I'm out in the countryside. The flowers, oh my God, the colors. I'm walking along and I'm, I'm fishing, but at the same time, I find something like all of a sudden I'll see this patch of flowers or maybe I'll see a thistle that's just in bloom and, and it's opening up and maybe there's bees. I was watching bees today on these flowers outside here and I just have to stop and look at that and just become a part of it, just observing it, but just observing the, the absolute beauty and just taking that in and being a part of that moment. I'm taking in this moment too, Jeff. 
<laughs> you, you, you had me along for the ride then. I was fully immersed in your story then. I think that's what being a human being is as well, as being able to observe and share and allow that space for that to happen. Anything else you'd like to explore in this podcast about mushrooms? What is it that you would love to share about the work that you're doing? And for people, if there was one take home for them, what would it be? I, I tell people, look, mushrooms are a fabulous food. As you know, they're so versatile. They go with everything. So put them into your diet. Don't delay. When you, when you see the mushrooms in the supermarket or the market, or today we're lucky. I mean, especially if you're not somebody who has access to going out and hunting for wild mushrooms, which is a whole nother thing that I tell people that you can do that. But otherwise, we've got all these wonderful mushrooms there. Learn a little bit about them, take them home, cook with them, put them into different things. I tell you, it's a great food. I think it's a super healthful food. Like I said earlier, populations that eat mushrooms live longer. I think that it is just, again, that missing link in our diets. There's everything positive about it, nothing negative that I know of. So, so please. <laughs> Buy some mushrooms, put them into your diet. That's what I, I think is the most important thing. When I'm at home, I'm eating mushrooms, I don't know, four or five days a week. I've got mushrooms in my different meals and I'm cooking them and, and putting them into different things, whether it be a stir fry. I, I love to just throw them in a pan with some butter, um, cook them up really nicely. And what I tell people too, and, and this is something that I find that is important, and you would know how to cook all this stuff better than I, but I, I always cook them in a very hot pan. If it's too low a temperature, the water comes right out of them. And then you've got a gravy, which, you know, unless you're, unless you're after a gravy, don't do that. High, high temperature. <laughs> I like to brown them up. I'll cook them a little longer than most people. I like to brown them up. Remember, they're going to shrink. And then, man, a little salt, a little pepper. The taste, I just, I, they, they barely make it out of the pan before I've eaten them all. What I love about them as a chef is they work so well with meat, all different types of meat. They work well with seafood, especially the Asian style mushrooms. They work really well with eggs and they work really well by themselves, either as a salad. You can eat a raw, pickled, roasted steam, however you like, stir fry. I do have one question for you, the last one. Now, I live on a farm and we have cattle on the, on the property. Now, after a storm, a lightning storm, sometimes at certain times of the year, out pop magic mushrooms. Why does it happen in Australia and, and maybe other parts of the world? Why does it happen that it comes out of these, these areas with cattle or, or other animals? And why is it sometimes, from what I understand, is the storm can activate these mushrooms? Have you worked that out? Or is it a myth or what's going on there? <laughs> no, no, but that is, that is, I love that. That is so cool. You know that mythologically, the indigenous people in Mexico would say that the mushrooms grow in places where lightning strikes the earth. And that is also something that other ancient peoples have, have put together, uh, mushrooms and lightning. But I suspect 
one of the what might be happening here during your lightning storm is is it may possibly be raining and the rain is bringing out the mushrooms because I don't, I'm not sure lightning in itself would have much of an actual effect. But, you know, just like in, in Mexico, the, the god uh, Tlaloc, who was a rain god and a lightning god, and he was associated with mushrooms and rain gods have been associated with mushrooms uh, in lots of different cultures. And aren't you lucky that you've got these mushrooms growing there because, you know, that particular, there's only, there's only really one psilocybin mushroom that will grow directly out of a uh, cow pie and that would be a psilocybe cubensis so people who, who want to find that naturally all you have to do is go out to where there's lots of usually it's a, a brahmin cattle in a in a more subtropical zone but you go out into those fields and walk around after a rain or something and you've got Lots of mushrooms coming up right out of those cow pies, and those are really high-quality, great psilocybe mushrooms. So, man, are you a lucky man. We are, that's for sure. And lastly, because I find this fascinating, some people have the philosophy that our brains grew in size because of our consumption of these psychedelic mushrooms. Sounds like you're talking about Terrence McKenna. So... Is there any truth to that? Is it speculation? What are your thoughts? And we'll wrap it up there. Well, you know, you know what? I absolutely think that the mushroom has had a profound effect on us as a species. And, and I do think that there's every reason to believe that that could have the kinds of effects, certainly, that, that Terrence McKenna talked about and, and sort of the stimulation. And when you think about, I mean, you've had the experience, I've had the experience, you know, something like that, it opens up us in a way that we're just like, oh my God, I had no idea that this was here. <laughs> All of a sudden, the dimension we find ourselves in and the fact that it will enhance audio, enhance our visual, enhance our tactile. I mean, it's just pretty amazing. And you figure, well, if you were doing this in a, in a regular way uh, early on and you did it such that, yeah, it, it could very well have had that effect. Now, I, I'm not a physiologist or, or neurophysiologist, so I couldn't do that. But, but certainly, Terrence McKenna was somebody who was, was going down all of those different avenues. And I certainly consider him one of the you know, more brilliant minds that has come along in the last... You know, we actually... We were, we were putting on mushroom conferences back in the late seventies, early eighties. And in our final mushroom conference, Terrence McKenna was our keynote speaker. And, hmm. and one of the things that he, he had written a, a small book about five or six years earlier with his brother Dennis. And one of his final words in his speech was something to effect of, Cultivate, 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 <laughs> grow these mushrooms. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think we would be in such a better place uh, in this world if, if the mushrooms were legal and people were taught how to use them and we had less alcohol going on because I, I'm really disappointed in how much further and deeper the alcohol culture has 
has gone since the the seventies when I sort of thought, okay, these things are pot and all the rest are going to, you know, do in the alcohol culture, not at all. Uh, but I definitely think that these uh, could have the mushrooms could have a very, very profound effect on our species. And I wish that, and I hope, and there does seem to be some indications that they may be coming back and, uh, their influence will be definitely very, very profound. Yeah, I'm watching closely. I know Denver, Oakland, and Santa Cruz over the last six months or 12 months have uh, yeah. have, have slowly... Australia might be about another 100 years, but that's, a, <laughs> that's another story. At least I've got the farm. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right, absolutely. And now that you've said this, you're going to have to put up a... <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what a great conversation, brother. I love you and enjoy Patagonia. Enjoy the fishing. Enjoy the bees. Enjoy the flowers and keep being you, brother. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Pete. It's just been fantastic. And I hope I get a chance to run into you one of these days when I'm down in Australia. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.